Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsor at MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Jamie Ford at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Jamie Ford made waves in 2009 with the publication of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, which charted on the New York Times bestseller list for more than two years. It also won forward the 2010 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature. His follow-ups, Songs of Willow Frost in 2013 and Love and Other Consolation Prizes in 2017, solidified the author's standing as one of historical fiction's foremost chroniclers of the Chinese-American experience. Ford's newest novel, The Many Daughters of Afang Moi, is an enthralling, century-spanning masterful saga, exploring the bonds that transcend physical space, according to Bookpage. After seeking an experimental treatment designed to mitigate inherited trauma, Dorothy Moy gains a novel and intimate connection to seven generations of Chinese ancestors. They include Afang Moy, the first Chinese woman known to set foot in North America. Among other honors, The Many Daughters of Afang Moy was selected by the Today Show for its popular Read with Jenna book club. Wow, thank you. Who's on Facebook? Who's on Twitter? Who's on Instagram? Who's not on anything? All right, cool, excellent. How are those eight track tape collections coming along? I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, another question, and uh, there's no right or wrong answer, but it, it helps me shepherd this discussion a, a little bit. Who's read my first novel, Hotel in the Corner of Bitter and Sweet? All right, cool. Um, we don't have to talk about that now. Um, no, I'm going to talk about it. Um, but I, the book came out like 12 years ago, and, and I'm, you know, I'm really known for that book, and people are sort of emotionally connected to me with that book. And so now I have a new appreciation for when like the Eagles go out to do a concert, and like, I wrote this this spring, and they're like, boo, Hotel California. Um, I, I understand that. Um, because so many people know me through Hotel, and that book is still, is still doing its thing, um, I, I tend to give the hotel update. Um, I mean, that book has a career, and I'm just along for the ride. And I stole that from Pamela Anderson, who said, my boobs have a career, I'm just along for the ride. It's, <laughs> it's apropos in both instances. Um, and that's not American Sign Language for boobs, but it could be. Um, things that have gone on with hotel. Some of the things that, that really surprised me is that 
uh, Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet became, uh, I mean, it's translated into all these languages, which is cool, but it became the, the number one book in Norway for five months, which is a little absurd. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wonderful, but it's so odd. And I, and I, I, because I can assure you, I didn't have any moment when I'm writing that book and I just pause and like, this is gonna rock Oslo. <laughs> Ludafisk for everybody. Um, but I did, I ended up doing two uh, lengthy book tours in Norway um, in winter. Um, they, you know, they read a lot of books in the wintertime. Not unlike here, not unlike Seattle. Um, but yeah, I, and the one thing, one of the most memorable things, many memorable things about Norway, but I'm, I'm there for like, my second night and my Norwegian publicist, he's like, okay, I wanna take you out to dinner. We have this new restaurant. It has this really cool food. It's called a taco. So, <laughs> so tacos are in Norway. And obviously it's a very big deal, so. Um, the other thing that happened with Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet is it's read widely in schools now, nationwide. Um, it's read overseas. I've been invited to speak to six high schools in Switzerland who are, are reading that. Uh, and it's, it's weird to grow up and become homework, truly. It's, it's, it's not something I ever planned for myself or that book. And the way it happened with me is, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like, okay, last week no schools are reading it, and now next week 300 schools are reading it. It was this slow, evolving process, and the way it, I first became aware of it was through summer reading. What happened was, you know, a lot of teachers had read it for fun, for pleasure, for their book clubs, and then they thought, okay, I can get this approved to add it to our summer reading list, and it, it grew from there. Now it's required reading in, in a, a number of states. But the way I found out about it was through summer reading. And <laughs> the thing is, I know how summer reading works, because um, I raised a house full of teenagers. And if you have raised teenagers, you kind of know how this works. You get that summer reading list on the last day of school, and it goes in their backpack. The backpack goes in the corner of the room. It collects dust all summer long. And then maybe a week before school is set to begin, they dig it out and they all go to this website called sparknotes.com. <laughs> um, and I'm not there, but I am on the internet. I am on social media. And so they track me down. Now every year at the tail end of August, I just get bombed with emails from high school students. Um, it's, and, and they say these, these heartwarming things. They're like, uh, Mr. Ford, uh, I loved your book. Uh, my favorite book of all time is Motel on the Corner of Sweet and Sour. Uh, if you could just answer these 12 questions for me, I'd appreciate it. Um, I, I never answer their specific questions. I always respond, because their questions are usually something like, what's the theme of your book? And I'm like, the theme is, turn off the Xbox. Say hi to your teacher for me. Um, but this happening took a sharp turn when my own daughter was assigned my book in high school. It's not cool when your dad is your homework and your friends are assigned your dad's book. Um, it's far from it. And so what my daughter, Krissa, did was she, she went out onto the internet, she went out onto Twitter, and she found all these tweets 
from high school students tweeting about my book. And because she found endless joy sharing these with me, I'm gonna share some with you. <laughs> these are actual tweets from actual high school students. Real tweets. This is from Mariah Cobb. And Mariah tweets, nobody read Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. They'll slowly tear up your heart and you'll cry your eyes out. Hashtag stupid English class. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Nicholas Reed, and you can, in the front you can see this is all caps. So this young man is just shouting out to the void. Who has a study guide for Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet? Sparknotes didn't have it. Hashtag, this is an emergency. That's good. Um, this is from Morgan Gaccioni, and Morgan tweets, anyone want to give me a good summary of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet? I'm willing to pay in cash. <laughs> good side hustle for somebody out there. Um, this is, uh, I love this one. This is from Alana. And Alana's Twitter name is Banana Alana. It's so cute. And what cute little Banana Alana is tweeting is, I would rather read Animal Farm every day of my whole life than effing read Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. <laughs> she didn't say effing, she just spelled it out. Um, and this, this last one, this is from, from Emma. More like Hotel on the Corner of This Book Sucks Boulevard. <laughs> it's, it's okay. What, what Emma doesn't realize is I'm fueled creatively by the angst of teenagers. So when Emma gets that pimple on prom night, it just gets stronger. It's okay. Um, and I, I, I have to share this one. This one, I've had book reviews. I've had um, interviews. You know, there's you know, thousands and thousands of reviews of my books online. Um, I will never have anything as incredible as this. And this is a long message that came through Instagram from a high school student. Dear Jamie Ford, the book Hotel on the Corner Bitter and Sweet was a really good book up until page 369. You sick, twisted bitch. <laughs> I hate you so much. Why? Why, Jay, why? Why you do that? Why you make me cry in the car on the way to zip lining? <laughs> Why would you do that to all the people who are forced to read this crappy book? At first I hated the book, but then Keiko and Henry made me almost tolerate the book, but no, you had to put in Ethel, that witch and pathetic, backstabbing, heartbreaking stealer of how the book was supposed to end. Page 369 broke my heart, like more than when my lizard died. <laughs> and do you know how much I died when my lizard died? Try almost actually dying. So the only way to make it up to me is to make a sequel and make sure that Henry and Keiko end up together and have awesome Chinese and Japanese babies. P.S. I don't mean to be mean or anything, it's just my opinion. <laughs> um, it doesn't get better than that, you know, or, or more memorable. Um, and I'm sharing some of the salacious ones with you, but I do get just as many, if not more, and, and they're of another type. And I love when I get a, a tweet and it's a dude, because young boys in high school they're considered resistant readers you know, to the publishing industry. They're really hard to reach. You know, young boys in high school, they've got video games, and they've got sports, and they've got hormones. A lot going on with those guys. But when I get a, you know, a tweet, and I can see the guy's photo, and he's wearing his football jersey, he probably just made varsity, and he tweets something like, this is the first time I was forced to read a book that I actually loved. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a moment. I mean, it's nice to have a, a best-selling book, but if I can reach a resistant reader in high school, 
I feel like I've, I've, you know, I've, I've done some good work as an author. But I'm here to talk to you about a new book, um, The Many Daughters of Afong Moy. Wow, this has been a journey with this book. Um, the book is about, I'm trying to think of a, it's, the book is, it's fairly complex, and so we've struggled to describe this book because it's historical, it's speculative, there's some magical realism, there's soft sci-fi, there's six time periods, there's six point of view characters, there's a lot of moving pieces. But like four days ago, I described it on Twitter as, it's about inherited trauma, but also a love story. And that tweet was liked 17,000 times. So evidently, that's how I'm gonna describe this book from now on. It is, the book is about inherited trauma. It's about, the, the long term for this is transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, or epigenetics. And when we think of genetic inheritance, we think of um, in the physical things, eye color, hair color, things of that nature. But in the book, I explore the very real possibility that we inherit psychological traits, like resiliency and phobias and you know, the, the ways in which we interact with other people, and in many cases, our ability or inability to love other people. And so the book starts with a very real woman, a historical figure. Her name was Afang Moi. She was the first Chinese woman to come to America. And she came to this country in 1834. And for a hot minute, she was the most famous woman in America. She toured from, you know, from New England to Cuba, performing in sold-out theaters everywhere she went. There were horses named, racing horses named after her. There were poems and songs written about her. She went to the White House and met President Andrew Jackson at his request. She was written about in more than 200 newspapers. And all of that excitement, it really hides or obfuscates the fact that Chinese women couldn't leave China at that time. And if they did, if they returned, their punishment was death. And so it's not likely that she was here like Nellie Bly, like this world traveler. She wasn't here as a cultural ambassador. It's more likely that she was sold into this service. And here she is in this country, a stranger in a strange land, with very little hope of ever going home. And in all of the newspaper articles about her, we never hear from her. It's always in the voice of the people who are promoting her, the people who have monetized her otherness. She, had, she would perform, she would sing in Chinese, she wore traditional Chinese clothing, and she had bound feet, which was, um, it was kind of a sideshow attraction because of that. And her story ends fairly tragically. We don't know for sure, but the last anyone hears about her is in 1849, a newspaper reports that she was found living in a poorhouse in New Jersey. It's the last anyone hears about this very famous woman. And I've been fascinated with her for a long time. And I wanted to write about her, but I, she, she didn't have a happy ending. She didn't have a redemptive ending. And she didn't have a voice. And when I went down the rabbit hole of epigenetics, I realized I could give her fictional descendants. And her trauma, her abandonment, her pain can be worked out through those descendants. Those descendants can give her a voice, and those descendants can, in, in 
many ways redeem her story, and that's what I've done in this book. In the book I have, my, my first three books, they're all set in Seattle. This book is, I call this book my big box of crayons because it's, it's, it goes everywhere. It's, it's Baltimore, it's San Francisco, it's Seattle, it's China, it's uh, England. And I have all these different characters who are all these fictional descendants. Uh, there's a character named Fei Moi who is a Chinese nurse working with the Flying Tigers in China during World War II. There's Zoe Moi who is a uh, a student at a very bohemian school in England in the 20s and 30s called Summerhill. Um, there's a contemporary uh, storyline set in 2014. But there was one storyline that really jumped, jumped out as I was writing it. Part of the book is set in San Francisco around the year 1900 and with a, a descendant there named Lai King Moy. In San Francisco at that time, they had a plague epidemic for four years. And so I'm writing about a plague epidemic during a global pandemic. And it doesn't appear in the book, but I have to do all this research. And in my research, I learned that during this plague epidemic, the governor of California, a man named Henry Gage, would not acknowledge that this was happening because he was afraid it would hurt California's economy and it would hurt his chance for re-election. There was a doctor with a vaccine and the doctor and the politician had a war of words in the press with the doctor, or with the politician accusing the doctor of having a profit motive, he's a quack, he's just trying to scare people. Does this sound at all familiar? <laughs> this was 120 years ago and I'm writing about this and it's playing out in reality. So um, there may be more to this epigenetics than we, than we can, can bear if we keep repeating these cycles. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit here and then we'll, we'll talk some more. When I, when I do these events, I traditionally, I don't read very much. I might read a page or two. And uh, the, the reason, well, there's many reasons why I keep my readings very short. But one of the more, more memorable reasons was I did an event in Florida and I was about to read and this lovely woman in the back with cotton hair stood up and yelled, we already know how to read. And it's <laughs> awesome when that happens. Um, I was so charmed by her, honestly. I, I, I gave her a hug afterwards. It, it made me realize Every one of us, myself included, if we are so fortunate, we will arrive at an age where we get to say whatever we want <laughs> under any circumstance. So, you know, she earned that right. Um, but I think I'm gonna read about five pages here. And this is the first chapter in the book. We're starting in the beginning with Fay Moy. It's 1942. Fay Moy signed a contract stating that she would never marry that's what the American volunteer group had required of all female recruits. Though, as she sat in the bar of the Kunming Tennis Club, Fei thought that perhaps there should have been an exception made for older nurses. Not that she had any immediate prospects among the 30 young officers who made up the Flying Tigers. It was just that a notarized statement of marital exclusion seemed to hammer home the fact that she'd never been in love. She'd come close once, back in her village near Canton, amid the wilted lilies of her youth. And since then, she'd felt many things for many people, but always more yearning than devotion, more appreciation than passion. 
There had even been an awkwardly arranged marriage proposal a lifetime ago at the Toto Koi restaurant, where a dashing young man got down on one knee with a ring and too much pomade in his hair. Wasted, that's what her father said when he, she turned him down. Beijing, why do you have to be this way? No one likes a stubborn girl. She tried not to roll her eyes. Why can't you call me Faye like everyone else? Because I'm not like everyone else. Look at you. You're not getting any younger. You should be happy someone still wants you at your age. She'd been 27. But as much as Faye had wanted to share her life with someone, to watch a sunset in the arms of somebody who wouldn't leave before sunrise, even then she knew that want was not the same as need. She refused to settle for convenience or to bet to abet her aching loneliness. She went to Lingham University instead, and she told herself that if she stopped looking, eventually the right person would come along, and that was decades ago. Now she felt like the jigsaw puzzle of her life had long been completed. The picture looked whole, but there was one piece missing. That's my heart, Faye thought, something extra, unnecessary. Now, well into her 50s, Faye still couldn't forget how in nursing school, Chinese mothers used to point at her as she walked down the street in the evening they'd turn to their daughters and say, don't be disobedient or you'll end up like her, or that's what happens when you're too proud, too foolish, no one wants you. Faye would pretend she didn't hear, then she'd run home and curl up in bed, crying herself to sleep in the morning, and in the morning, she'd light a Chesterfield and stare at the tobacco-stained tobacco ceiling, aching inside as tendrils of smoke drifted up like unanswered prayers. To her parents and those mothers on the street, Faye was an old maid though she didn't feel like one, even after she arrived in Kunming, where she was twice the age of the American nurses who followed. On the bustling streets of Kunming, Faye was treated differently. Perhaps that's because she'd served longer and now hardly noticed the suffocating humidity of typhoon season, or because she didn't scream when field rats crawled their way into her dresser and chewed the buttons off her clothing. Conceivably, it was because she was fluent in English, thanks to Lai King, her American-born mother, and could quote poetry by Li Bai, as well as Oscar Wilde. Yet also spend an entire afternoon playing canasta and whist while drinking Tiger Bombs and not let the rum cocktails make her sick for days. You want another? Faye shook her glass tumbler. Lois, the latest nursing recruit, a comely blonde from Topeka, looked back leery-eyed. Am I, am I supposed to say yes? What is this? some kind of initiation? I don't know why everyone around her drinks so much, Lois said, waving broadly at everyone in the club. And why do they have to play such sad music? They listened to the jukebox as Frank Sinatra sang, I'll Never Smile Again. She thought about the flashes of light on the horizon each night, the peals of thunder followed by the rumble of pony carts on cobbled streets in the morning, and the wailing of widows as refugees flooded through the city's arched gates. It comes with the territory, Faye said as she worried about her parents, whom she hadn't heard from in two years. She finished her drink, leaving only a mint leaf. Faye grumbled. They should have made the mints wear an oath as well. Faye felt invisible compared to Lois, who was so young and so fetching in her periwinkle blouse. Why would you want that? It would lessen our chances, Lois said. But I guess at your age, you could probably care less that the AVG is run like a seventh grade church dance. After all, you must be close to retirement. Faye cringed inside, and she wished she'd cut Lois off two drinks ago. But for the rest of us girls, we're still in the game, Lois yammered. You're so lucky. I always wondered what it would be like to live alone, to be able to choose how to spend my evenings and my days. I thought you had a boyfriend back home in Kansas, Faye asked. Oh, please, don't mother hen me, Lois laughed. 
We could all die over here at any moment from bombs or malaria or sheer boredom. Faye understood that all too well. Orders arrived like the tropical rains along the Burma Road, all at once or not at all. Lois kept talking. If I'd wanted to settle down, I wouldn't have traveled halfway across the around the world to take this job. It's not paradise, but it's more exciting than watching the tumbleweed races back home. Besides, you only get one life, you know. Faye remembered feeling just as eager years ago, restless and weary of her parents' disappointment. She left her hospital job and sailed from Canton to Rangoon aboard the Jaegersfontein, an ocean liner with a swimming pool and an orchestra. There she met and was hired by Dr. Gentry, a U.S. Army flight surgeon who was traveling with a group of pilots and aircraft mechanics, all of them with fake IDs in case they were stopped by the Japanese. Faye had been excited but also nervous to join the Americans, especially when she heard the Japanese issue orders to kill all Chinese, and doc Chinese doctors and nurses caught fleeing the occupied cities. Once she stepped off the ship, however, she felt at ease as though the broken compass of her heart was now working. She traveled with Dr. Gentry's team on the Burma Road over the Himalayas to Yunnan Province. There, her magnetic north led her on muddy roads past water buffalo and roadside statues of the Buddha towards something unknown but oddly hopeful. Here in Kunming, she felt complete even as the world around her was on fire. I thought you were gonna buy me another drink, Lois said. Faye cocked her head, eyes toward the ceiling. Fine, Lois said. I'll go get one myself. Wait! Faye grabbed Lois's arm. Do you hear that? I don't hear a thing. Faye watched as the bartender quickly unplugged the jukebox, which elicited a round of groans from drunken patrons. Their protests diminished as one by one they heard the sound of an air raid siren. Oh God, not again. Lois knelt down, nearly tipping the table over. As pilots and crewmen began running for the door, Faye listened for the sound of explosions or the heavy thud of passive bombs filled with yellow wax and maggots designed to spread cholera. Instead, she heard the wail change to a long, blaring tone. Let's go, let's go, Faye urged Lois, pulling her up and toward the exit. That's the all clear, it means we're safe, but a plane is inbound. Outside the club and into the street, villagers and merchants, beggars and monks, all searched the late afternoon sky. Faye looked as well, hearing the all too familiar roar and sputter of a damaged P-40 engine, one of theirs. Then a shark-nosed fighter plane sailed overhead, leaving a contrail of black oil smoke in its wake. She sprinted in the direction of the new airstrip, a large clearing of land that used to be a sugarcane field. As Faye ran, she didn't feel her age or the alcohol she felt needed. And when she arrived at the edge of the airstrip, out of breath, the smoking plane had swung around, dropped its landing gear, and was rapidly descending on an open runway. Lois caught up and swayed next to her as a crowd of mechanics and pilots gathered, some praying, some cursing. Faye had seen this before, damaged planes making emergency landings anywhere they could, clipping treetops or crashing into nearby hangars. The last airman to an attempt an emergency landing at Kunming died for his efforts. His body burned beyond recognition. Faye took Lois's hand as the pilot shut off the engine on descent. It's going to be okay, Faye told Lois. Her words felt like a wish as the nose of the aircraft pitched upward to slow its silent approach. She watched the smoking plane glide above the ground for a breathless moment before its landing gear kissed the runway. The men around her erupted into cheers. The plane was still smoking and the front of the fuselage was black with soot, the cockpit a web of broken glass. There were so many bullet holes Faye wondered how the pilot had managed to survive, let alone land. 
When he threw back the canopy, she saw his face covered in blood. The young pilot climbed out, his flight suit slick with oil and his wet boots squished on the runway as he limped toward them. Faye felt the crowd surge forward. She became a rock in a stream of people flowing past her, everyone laughing, cheering, until the cockpit burst into flames and the plane exploded, sending a billowing cloud of debris into the air that made a tinkling sound as hot metal rained down around them. The wounded pilot looked at her, dazed, as 30 and 50 caliber rounds from the plane's mounted guns began cooking off in the flames, shooting in all directions. The crowd dispersed in a frenzy, shouting, ducking, running. They heard the chirping sound of bullets piercing the air. She froze as the young man waved at her amid the mayhem, staggering in her direction. Faye could see his bloody, oil-soaked flight suit, the flammable grime that blackened his hands. She could smell the burning, could smell the petroleum as he approached and could feel the heat from the burning wreckage. She watched in horror as the pilot tucked a crumpled cigarette into the corner of his mouth and fished out a Zippo lighter. Faye dashed toward the wounded stranger as Lois called her name, as men screamed, get down! She heard the pilot striking his lighter again and again and again until a curl of fire flickered on the breeze, a wagging finger, orange and blue. I'll stop right there. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, the, the book has all these interlaced timelines, and through all of those timelines, there's the sense of someone searching for someone else uh, through the generations. And I don't want to go further because I'll give away spoilers, but this stranger who Faye is meeting for the first time is someone that they've met before. I'll just leave it at that. Um, the last thing I'll, I'll share before uh, we do Q&A, this always gets, gets asked. Um, it has a little thing on the, the cover. This was uh, a read with Jenna Pick on the Today Show. And people often ask, how does that happen? Because I always wondered, like, how do celebrity book clubs pick their books? How does Oprah pick her books? How does Reese Witherspoon pick her books? How does Jenna pick her books? Um, and currently, Jenna has the largest one uh, in the country. The way I found out about it was I was on a Zoom with a library in Kentucky. And it was, it was just like this, but on the internet. So it's me and a librarian and about 40 patrons and we're talking about books, and I, I get off the call, and my phone rings, and it's my publicist. And she said, okay, we didn't want to tell you beforehand because we are afraid it would freak you out, but there were people from the Today Show on that call watching you. <laughs> like, who? She said, all of them. There were nine people watching me. Um, and that doesn't make you feel paranoid or self-conscious at all. Um, that night, we ordered a pizza, got the pizza, delivery guy walks away, and I'm like, what if that was a producer from the Today Show? <laughs> Trying to find out if I put pineapple on my pizza. Um, it was weird, because they're basically, they're vetting you. And so that led to, I mean, they passed that test. Then I had a Zoom meeting with, with a, a smaller group of producers, and they're, they're just, they just want to make sure you're housebroken for national television, <laughs> national morning television, that you're not going to go on the show and just be like, I want to talk about QAnon or something like that. Um, they just want to know you're, you're stable. Um, and uh, so they're asking me these questions about my life, my, 
my kids, my wife, my parents, they, they want to know this 360 degree view of, of who I am. And I'm like, okay, I can, I can sum up who I am in one sentence. They're like, okay. I said, in the fourth grade, my parents sent me to poetry camp. And they're like, yeah, I wouldn't know who this guy is. <laughs> so, uh, collected comic books, yes. Uh, played Dungeons and Dragons, yes. Uh, had an imaginary girlfriend in high school, yes. Um, no, yeah, uh, and then I finally you know, had my meeting with Jenna, and she's super cool. When I went on the Today Show, everyone's like, you're so relaxed, because we, we'd had many conversations before that. And Jenna actually has formed a production company and uh, has optioned this book, uh, hopefully to be produced by Universal. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been amazing. This, the journey of this book has been weird because, I'll tell you some accolades, it's not a, a humble brag or a brag, there's a reason. Um, like it was, it was Jenna's pick, it was, it was optioned for film even before the book was published. It was Costco's pick, Target's pick, it was uh, the Indie Next list, all the independent bookstores in the country vote on their favorite books that are coming out and it was their top book for August. I was in Times Square and there's a billboard with the book. Um, I'm only sharing this with you because my previous publisher didn't want this book. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I left Random House for Simon & Schuster. Um, my previous books had created a box of expectation and they wanted me to stay in the box and I, I just didn't want to do that. So jumped out of the box, published this. It was the first time in my career I didn't have a publisher, an editor, or a book contract. It's like starting over again. Um, but it worked out. And <laughs> Now I need to like write a memoir just called Schadenfreude, my, <laughs> my life in publishing. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Jamie Ford and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering, as a man writing about women, how does Ford make those characters feel so believable and authentic? It, it, it is, it's a fair question. It's, it's a question I get at every stop. There, there was someone in some variation. I was yeah. in, uh, where was I? I was like Nashville and a woman stood up and she's like, Dorothy is me. How are you in my head? How did you do this? Um, it's interesting. Uh, do you bounce it off your daughter? Do you bounce it off your wife? Like, how does that? I, I ride in drag. I find that that works. <laughs> my, my, my drag name is. Yeah, my, my drag name is Amy Tantric. So, uh, no. Um, no, I. Uh, my second book, Songs Will of Frost, because I, I really have a, a, you know, the main character is a female protagonist, and that was the book where I started to get that reputation. I'd walk into interviews, my name's Jamie, and they'd look up and they're like, you're a guy! And I'm like, sorry, I have a Y chromosome, I can't help it. Um, for me, um, you know, I was that kid. I, I lived in Ashland, Oregon, until I was 12, it was a theater town, I went to poetry camp. I. I was that boy in high school that I cried at sad movies and sad songs. And, 
Yeah. Um, and when you're the boy who cries at like sad movies in high school, that's not an asset. <laughs> high school is like, how, for boys, is like, how much can you bench press? How far can you throw a football? But when I became a writer, all the things I thought were my weaknesses as a kid became my superpowers. And so, even looking back, because I've had so many of these questions, I've had to think about it. In high school, I took, I, I took electives that generally only young women took. And I didn't know that when I signed up for them. So I'd look at my electives and like, okay, I've got auto shop and metal shop. I wasn't that interested, but I'm like, oh, cool, practical family living, that sounds interesting. It's a class where you carry the baby around, you know? And I walk in, it's like me, the one queer boy who was out, and 28 young women. Um, and I don't know, I was just, I was just, I was just, uh, I think, I'm gonna slide this over a little bit. I think today they would describe it as having a, a larger, larger than average emotional IQ. This audience member asks if Ford does his own research or does he share that workload? It's, it's just me, it's all me. Um, I interview people, I read scientific papers, I travel and spend time in you know, the archives of historical societies and museums and things like that. Um, it's me, the first person to read the draft is my wife and then it goes to my editor. So I don't even send it to my agent first, it goes me, wife, editor, that's, the, that's how it goes. I don't have sensitivity readers, I don't have, uh, the writer has to be sensitive enough to, to do that, I think, or you shouldn't be writing it. Um, yeah, I, but I like research. I could do that to the exclusion of writing. It's really, it's fun. It's like, basically research for me, it's like, everyone here probably has that moment where you, you need to look something up, you go to Wikipedia, and then you click on something, then you click on something, and like 90 minutes later, you're reading about something wildly unrelated. And that's what I do with research. And so I got, had to research all these time periods. I had to research the Summer Hill School, the Flying Tigers. I have some connective tissue to some of these things because uh, I have three great uncles who served with the Flying Tigers um, in US Army intelligence during World War II. Uh, Chinese Americans were there. Um, but yeah, uh, Summer Hill was a school that I've been obsessed with forever. I wish I had gone to Summer Hill. That would probably be a better school for me growing up. Um, it was known as the school with no rules. Um, which is very interesting. But yeah, it's just, it helped that I had, like I'm reading all these scientific papers and watching presentations on epigenetics and optogenetics, two different things, and I can talk about that chapter and verse these days, but at the time, I'm reading all these papers, they're not written for entertainment, they're written for peer review, so they're really dry and hard to read, so I would spend days reading those and try to synthesize what's happening and my wife, who is a biology major, I'd be like, and she's a nurse, I'm like, okay, did I explain this properly? She's like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, so she definitely was a resource, but it's just me. The, I, I have to share one other little thing, because you're like, is there somebody else? Do you have this? I have so many writer friends who have an assistant that's just them with a different email. <laughs> my, I'm giving, I won't say who it is, but she, she's a wonderful, very popular novelist, and she has an assistant named Alexander, because she found that a guy can say no much easier. Like, someone will ask something, and Alexander will just say, sorry, I can't have time for that, and she's busy. And so, yeah, Alexander is actually her.
This question is about where Jamie Ford's ideas come from. This one was weird because, like I said, I, I created a box of expectation. Um, my, I, I felt like Random House would just, you know, dump money on my lawn if I keep writing books within that, that framework. I, I just, I couldn't do that. It's just, I don't know. Um, so I had to jump out of the box. But I wasn't quite there. I went to a writing, or an artist residency north of Chicago called Ragdale. And I walked in with something I was working on that I, I wasn't in love with it, but I'm like, okay, this is what they want me to work on. And another author who were friends, we, we had met before this, she saw me. She's just like, she just pulled me aside and diagnosed me, you know, in five minutes. She's like, put this away. She's like, I can tell you don't love it. Uh, divorce yourself from the expectations of everybody else. Get back to writing for yourself. And I did, and I, I stayed there. I wrote an eight-page synopsis that became this book. And I, in that synopsis, I had all the characters, all their arcs. Um, I had all these things floating around in my head. It was just I had the time and the space to put them all together and make it work. Um, and I stayed in the room. It's the blue room. They call it the lucky room. I think they call it the lucky room because it's, it's where the founder of this artist residency actually died. Um, so. Instead of like the room of death, it's the lucky room. It's just rebranding. Re but um, authors who have started books in that room have had good success. Um, another one that's, that started in that room was Time Traveler's Wife. Um, so a lot of good things happen in the lucky room. So that's part of it. This audience member asks about Ford's unique approach to the acknowledgement section of Afeng Moy. Yeah, the acknowledgements and the author's note they're always boring. <laughs> I'm like, I want to make this readable that someone would actually want to read it and, and actually serve up some information that, that helps, you know. When, when you read a good book, you have a book hangover, you know, and that sort of helps with the book hangover. Our next question is how Ford's interest in epigenetic research, especially inherited trauma, first came about. Research varies. For books like my previous books it's like six months to eight months um, this one maybe less but I had read so many things for pleasure that I, I had already and when I read them I I make notes all over the pages I just write on you know on the paper so I had read books about Afang Moy I had read books about the plague in San Francisco I probably read ten books about Summerhill so over the last you know, seven or eight years I had sort of been storing that information. So most of my research was just about epigenetics and optogenetics. Um, the, uh, if you're wondering what optogenetics is, um, epigenetics is a really cool study done in Emory University in 2013 where they showed that um, one traumatic event had been transmitted across five generations of lab animals. Optogenetics happened a year later at MIT where a group of scientists transplanted a memory from one lab animal to another. I can explain after this how all that happened, but I combined those two things in a future context for the book. Um, what got me interested in that was uh, Van Halen. <laughs> not, 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 someone gave me this shirt because I talk about Van Halen. It's in my, my author's note. When my son Taylor was 12, you know, we're listening to Radio Disney. He's a little kid. I had never played Van Halen for him. He came up to me one day. He's like, Dad, 
have you heard of this band called Van Halen? And I'm like, yeah, where'd you hear about them? And he had bumped into them on YouTube and he had just watched one of their concert videos and just basically, you know, said, this is the greatest band of all time. And Van Halen was my first concert as a 16 year old boy. And at first I thought, okay, maybe that's a, a weird parent-child coincidence, but I think all of us, we have those moments where you look at your, your granddaughter and go, that's my mother. Or you look at, you're in the mirror and you go, I'm my mother. Um, or, you know, you look at my son and like, my dad used to sit exactly the way he's sitting. You know, those kind of things. And I always felt like there's more connection there's nature and nurture, but I think there's probably more nature than we, than we, than we want to admit, because uh, it robs us of our free agency if we, if we really buy into that. Um, so that's, that's where it came from, Van Halen. <laughs> yeah, as I've been traveling, people have been giving me Van Halen stuff, so <laughs> it seemed like I might as well wear it. Another audience member inquires about Ford's writing process when creating interwoven narratives. My, my previous books are split narratives. There's two time periods, and those I write start to finish. I just ping pong back and forth as I go. I tried to do this with this book. It's just too complicated. It's like juggling three balls and someone throws in a chainsaw and a brick and a kitten, and like you just can't keep it all in the air. So about 100 pages into the book, I just had to stop and really roughly write all the narratives. Um, and then weave them together, and then basically rewrite all of it um, at that point. But, and even then, I wasn't sure if I was able to stick the landing, you know, I wasn't sure if I was, this was gonna work, but it seems to be making a lot of people happy. This question asker wonders why Ford, a successful historical fiction novelist, decided to try his hand at speculative fiction. Um, speculative fiction, the difference between science fiction and speculative fiction, science fiction is rooted strictly in science, speculative fiction is just a future context. It could be future society, government, religion, just like what, what's the future look like as you're walking around. Um, speculative fiction is actually, it's kind of my mother tongue. It's like the first, my first love. Um, as a young lad and even as a, a grown man, I, I read so much spec fic. Um, there's a you know, very famous speculative fiction author named Harlan Ellison, uh, very popular in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And when I had some publishing success, I contacted Harlan and I bought his first typewriter. So speculative, yeah, it's so, it's so wonderful to have. And, and then I became good friends with Harlan for, you know, uh, for a while there until he, he passed. But, um, yeah, speculative fiction's always been in me. I just, Hotel in the Corner of Bitter and Sweet was so much about me figuring out who I was as someone who's half Chinese and understanding my father and stuff like that. Um, but I always wanted to write something that was historical and futuristic in the same book. So this was the, this was the hope, the dream. Um, a little scary there at first, but we made it. The last question of the night comes from an audience member noting that during the pandemic, we saw an upsurge in prejudice and racist attacks against Asian Americans. This is something Ford has written about before. What are his thoughts on the current environment? Um, yeah, it actually kind of, 
appears in this in this book um, because with that plague epidemic in the late 1800s they blamed the Chinese as well um, they blamed Chinatown um, they roped off Chinatown kept Chinese people there kept all people of color black people there but the white people would come and go past the quarantine as though they couldn't possibly catch it it was like a it, yeah, it was, we're, when there was all these assaults, these random assaults on, on Chinese Americans and kind of a, you know, certain news pundits, you know, they just make hay. They make money dividing people, whether they actually believe that or not. I, I doubt they're just, you know, they stir it up for profits. But yeah, there was a lot of hostility to, to Chinese people in both time periods. And so I did. I, I, I set that story there in Chinatown um, and kind of describe some of the things that were going on. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs>